Hello and welcome to the January episode of the Organic Gardening Podcast. I'm Fiona Taylor and in a moment I'll be joined by my colleagues Chris Collins and Dr Anton Rosenfeld. But first of all, let me say Happy New Year to you. I hope you had a good break and perhaps enjoyed some of your own homegrown fruit and veg during the festivities. There's no doubt we're in the depths of winter right now and later on Chris gives us a bit of background on why snow is a good thing for growers as well as the benefits of frost. Looking out of my kitchen window today, I was rewarded with the sight of a black cap, also known as a grey warbler, a lovely little bird. I hope he reappears for the RSPB Big Bird Watch at the end of the month, which Chris and I are both looking forward to. For this month's interview, we go back in time to a very mild November, when Yo Valley head gardener Sarah Mead gave me a tour around their beautiful organic garden and talked me through the organic methods they use. And in the post bag, we'll talk about covering soil with fallen leaves, what to do with fresh horse manure and choosing small eating apple varieties for a garden in Aberdeenshire. But first, I'm off to join Chris in the potting shed. Well, hello, Chris. And may I be the first person, I'm sure, to say to you, Happy New Year. Happy New Year, Fiona. I hope you had a good Christmas. I had a wonderful Christmas. Now, I have to ask you, though, what did you have that was homegrown on your dinner plate? Well, I think my preparations really paid off. And I had delicious organic carrots, parsnips, potatoes, swedes and turnips in my Christmas dinner. Yeah, that, that little effort for the night of storing them in sand. And you know what? It really reminded me of the difference between shop-bought vegetables and stuff you've grown yourself organically. The taste is just so much different. And I think you start to really live for that taste when you organic garden and organic food grow. Definitely, definitely. Well, I'm afraid I'm not such a good vegetable gardener, as you know. I, I, I make my efforts and I try my hardest. But for me, it was about the herbs. I've had some beautiful bay leaves um, in my bread sauce. I had some lovely rosemary on the potatoes. I mean, these are herbs that just give back all year round. I have to say, though, I had the tiniest of side salads made out of lamb's lettuce uh, because they're, they're taking a while to come through. But I, I was determined to have a little bit of greenery on the, on the plate that I'd grown myself. So, yeah, so heartening, isn't it, to have something that you just popped outside and, and picked and, and then used straight away. Yeah, it's very satisfying. That whole sort of seed, you know, through to the plate. I can't think of anything else, really, that gives me that much pleasure, really, when it comes to growing plants. It is, isn't it? Because we we, we talk a lot about, you know, veg growing, but actually we don't talk a lot about eating them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's true, isn't it? Which is really, I mean, if you, it, that whole, that to me, that satisfying feeling of bringing it home after I've grown it and all the effort and time and sweat you put into it. You, some people might think, well, why would you do that? It's crazy. The shops are full of food, but it's just nothing like it when you actually cook it. It makes you more adventurous with your cooking for a start. You try different stuff because you may have gone to all this effort. So you eat better, you're eating healthier. And I just the taste is just so much better. And it's not a cliche. It's not at all. If people try it, they'll totally understand it because there's nothing better than the taste of organic grown food. I definitely need to increase my yields because the pressure that comes with, you know, preparing the tiniest portion of veg when you know you've only gonna you've only managed to grow about three portions. <laughs> <laughs> well, you say, look, as long as you're on the road, you know, as long as you're there. So, you know, one day you'll be growing far too much, and that's the way it works, I think. I think you'll have succeeded with me if we get to that. I'll look forward <laughs> okay, to that. Okay, yeah. Well, of course, it wouldn't be a January podcast without us uh, reflecting on the weather. Um, a lot of snow around, a lot of frost around. I know you're a bit of a fan when, when the snow falls. Tell, tell me why it's a good thing. 
Well, I don't mind the snow because it's what it is. It's an insulator. It's almost like a blanket on top of the soil. So it keeps the soil warm. So it helps protect root balls. So if you were, you know, a bulb or you were a herbaceous perennial, maybe say if you were a rhododendron and, and, and you've got these roots that could be affected by, by heavy frosts, the snow will protect it. It forms this blanket and keeps the soil warm and helps protect the roots. So as a gardener, I'm not really bothered by snow. I'm far more concerned about how the frosts behave and how they're going to affect the roots of my plants. Yes, and of course there's different types of frosts that we've got to be a bit careful of. Not so worried about a ground frost, are you? But it's more the permafrost. Yeah, when it sort of penetrates the soil and gets into the soil, especially with the, we grow a lot of exotic plants these days, don't we, formiums? I mean, rhododendron, I've mentioned that already, is quite an exotic plant. So we grow a lot of this stuff that wouldn't naturally be here. So they're very prone to permafrost. So a permafrost can get down into the soil and sit there. And what happens then is you get a thing called psychological drought, which is very apparent in uh, evergreen plants. So the plant looks fine. It comes to spring. It tries to take up water. Its roots are damaged and the whole thing will flag. And that's called a psychological drought. And and how do we protect in, in that instance then? Well, certainly mulching is a big, is a good idea. If you've got vulnerable species that are exotic that might get damaged roots, I would certainly uh, look at mulching around them and keep that frost above the root hairs, which tend to sit on top of the soil. That's a good idea. The snow will do it for you as well. If you've got stuff that's maybe contained or very tender, maybe you've grown palms, track, uh, carpuses, stuff like that, then why not think about wrapping the crown in hessian that a lot of gardeners do that in sort of exotic gardens logan botanic garden up in scotland's got a very exotic collection you'll see they'll stuff the crown with insulator and then wrap it in hessian and that'll stop the frost and the wet getting into the crown if you've got stuff in pots hessian wrap the pot because once that frost gets into the pot you're in big trouble and you'll lose your plant i mean this is the thing with pots isn't it i and i've got an olive tree uh, not a very big one sort of next to the house outside the back door i mean they say it'll be okay down to minus five but it's been a lot colder than that is it a question of just just covering the top or covering the pot and the top what what would be your advice well i'd say i'd cover the whole pot i'd wrap the whole pot and the top because obviously it might be in clay for instance and clay is porous frost can get in through clay in fact even the pot itself can be damaged by frost so i would wrap the whole thing it's always worth having a roll of hessian in your in your tool shed for when these cold snaps go along so if you wrap that up it will just stop that frost penetrating the pot damaging the container itself but certainly damaging the plant roots it's interesting that because i fleeced some bay trees a couple of years ago and put a piece of fleece sort of over the top it they're kind of a lollipop shape so I put a piece of fleece over the top left it for three or four days and the weather warmed up and I and I took the fleece off and and what happened was all the leaves turned a sort of brown like half the leaf turned brown it didn't kill the plant but until the spring they they really didn't look happy yeah that's a that's definitely the frost has penetrated there I think that's what's happened that's why you're getting that browning um so I, that's that's poss- possibly the reason maybe make sure you if it's just three or four days put it on nice and thick with hessian I tend to wrap it really thick I don't just put one thin layer I tend to put three or four or five layers around to make sure the frost has no chance of penetration so if you are using fleece be generous with it of course, there's, you know, good things to frost. Um, I mean, we all need it. It's all part of the cycle of life and all that. But, but just talk us through what it can do in a positive way for soil health. 
Yeah, well, you know, it's uh, it, obviously frosts come for a reason. In fact, when we don't have them, we call, we, they cause us all sorts of problems. First of all, I think frost is important for heavy soils, and there's a lot of heavy soil in this country. So if you've got a clay soil, nice, you know, really sort of solid, it falls big lumps or it cracks up when it's dry. A frost is ideal because it'll break that clay up. It'll break the molecules down. It'll break it up, make your soil much more friable. So a lot of gardeners, what they'll tend to do is turn over the clay in the autumn and then hope for frost to come in and break all that clay up, make sure it's a better soil come the following year so that's one reason and obviously when it's breaking up that, that helps all the microbes and all the other stuff that lives in the soil to, to carry on the process I mean, the other thing as well is it, it has to kill off pests doesn't it we've had a lot of really mild winters and that means things like black fly particularly on my allotment site it's been absolutely rife come the spring because nothing's checking it nothing's keeping it back slugs uh, eggs and you know snail eggs if we want to stop them being eaten in excessive amounts we want the frost to come in Prune the numbers back, keep the numbers down and form a more natural balance in our garden. So frost is incredibly important to the garden. And also, I mean, there's nothing more beautiful on a winter's day than everything being coated in that amazing silver. Oh, it's incredible, isn't it? And and sometimes, you know, we've had those layers upon layers of, you know, the frost goes on for a number of days and then it just gets more and more intense. Fantastic if you're looking across a landscape or up a hill and and seeing it tinged against a blue sky. I mean, I you know, it's just mind blowing, isn't it? Absolutely beautiful. I, I like the uh, the idea. Of, you know, you get herbaceous borders, and you, I just love the way you get the four seasons and the fresh green in the spring, the flowers through the summer, and the autumn colour. But that the, the sight of a, a, an uncut down herbaceous border, straw border with a silver frost through it, is absolutely amazing. And obviously, that's providing cover for all your spiders and all these other important little insects. We've got a lot of really tall miscanthus here at Wrighton, which just looks magical in the winter. And and also um, those permanent plants, you know, the, the fruit trees, the hedgerows, it just looks brilliant in the winter, I have to say. And it, it goes to show that actually just taking a bit of time to think about the design and, the, and, and where you're going to plant things can actually reward you all year round, can't it? Certainly can. I think, uh, you know, I know we've all just come through Christmas and uh, the credit card would have took a bit of a hammer in and we're all feeling a bit down and winter's suddenly feeling a bit long. But, you know, what if we get a nice heavy frost tomorrow, go out, have a walk around your park and appreciate how beautiful it is. Uh, absolutely. And really good to have a shout out for your local park. Definitely. And uh, coming from a parks man himself. <laughs> <laughs> a little bit biased there, probably. <laughs> uh, we had a little bit of a implication there about waistlines perhaps changing a little bit over the last few weeks with all the Christmas <laughs> festivities. This month, January, is also Veganuary. So this this campaign to encourage us to think about vegan living. And there is a strand of gardening that's known as vegan organic gardening. It is a combination of the two, vegan and organic, veganic gardening. It's really an interesting thing to think about being more mindful of what we automatically might use to fertilize our soil and i think i think it's fascinating because i don't think it's the kind of thing that necessarily comes to mind unless you are a vegan or know a vegan so what do you think about veganic gardening well i think i've kind of i've fallen into it but without really thinking about it 
Uh, for example, bone meal. Every gardener would use bone meal in the autumn. It's a phosphorus-based. It, it, it promotes group, uh, root growth. So it's always kind of been there. But I think since I've been sort of composting and leaf moulding, I've sort of found I haven't really got any need for it. You know, I'm very big on organic products such as seaweed and the, of, of the Bokken 14, our wonderful comfrey. So I've started using them in the growing season. Uh, but now in the autumn, if I've got good leaf mould, I'll put that down instead, I think. So I've kind of fallen out of using those materials anyway. They are quite expensive nowadays but i think as a gardener it's not wholly necessary that i use animal-based fertilizers there are much more there's a wider group of fertilizers out on the market we can use these days time to think twice about moving um away really from animal products i think i think that's true in in the garden i don't think there's any really need or call for them Often when people talk about a vegan diet, these days the word plant-based diet is often used. Of course, we would say that's an absolutely brilliant thing to be promoting. The more veg we can grow and eat, the better it is for biodiversity and the better it is for us. Yeah, better for our health. I mean, to be honest with you, I certainly, for one, need to lose a few pounds after December. And so, you know, why not just give it a go for a month? We have a have a month where we don't have a drink. Why not have a month where you just eat plant-based? You know, you'll lose your, slopes, your waistline a little bit. You'll feel a lot healthier. So let's just, you know, let's like make a little sacrifice. You're doing a little bit for your planet for one month. Why not? And I'll tell you what, there are plenty, plenty of beautiful dishes you can make with just plants. You really can. Give it a try. That's what we're saying. Absolutely. Another great thing to celebrate in January is the RSPB Big Bird Watch. Um, do you take part in this, Chris? I did do a couple of years ago. and uh, An amazing time. I mean, it's such a great thing. They're a great organisation, aren't they? And the way they get everybody involved and millions of people join in. So it's obviously very successful. And I've got these stick-on bird feeders that stick to the window and uh, they're just non-stop. They're so busy and uh, I don't need much of an excuse to sit there and be mesmerised by the small bird life that comes and feeds on them. So it really is it's a bonus, really. It's a very enjoyable thing to take part in. It's fantastic, isn't it? Do you feed the birds all the year round? I do, but I'm beginning. I mean, I know a lot of people who are experts in this area saying that's probably not a good idea. I, I think in a little way, like most people who feed birds, I'm a bit selfish. I love to see them turn up. Uh, I want to see them and I'm maybe being a bit selfish. I think there are big questions over that. They should be eating naturally during the spring and the summer because there's plenty of food out there. And I think from what research has been done, if you're feeding artificially, some species benefit much more than others. And it sort of skews the numbers a bit of how the species are doing. So maybe, maybe we ought to maybe get a look at what the RSPB is saying and bird experts are saying and seeing if we need to readdress that. Yeah, it's a really good point. We need to do the right thing. In this programme, we're talking later on to Sarah Mead from Yo Valley, and she's got an amazing garden. And she's very strict about stopping feeding after the winter months because she wants the birds to feed on the insects in the garden and be part of the ecosystem. So, you know, it's it's a lesson to all of us, isn't it, to watch what nature's doing and, and to go with that. Yeah, I think she's uh, she's absolutely right. You know, uh, you want them eating the aphids, don't you? And, uh, and the uh, caterpillars and the stuff that we don't want in too great numbers in our garden. So what she makes, says makes perfect sense. Well, I do do make sure they've got enough water and, and they really repay you there. If, you, if you've got anything, even just a little bird bath, a few saucers out. It's incredible, actually. And that's really something you can do for them in the summer months. Yeah, they, they, we get them on the balcony bath, bathing. We put drip trays out of water and uh, they come along, the robins and the blue tits come along and get well involved. Even the magpies get involved sometimes. It's just lovely having these things around. So maybe water's the go, yeah? 
Yeah, definitely. I love the way they put their head under as well. <laughs> yeah, it's just brilliant. It's just brilliant. The <laughs> simple hair things hair. in life, isn't it, Fiona? The simple things in life. Very much so. Yeah. <laughs> I must ask you, Chris, it's the beginning of the year. Have you got any predictions for trends or things that we perhaps need to be thinking about, looking out for in 2023? Well, I think the march of organic practices and environmental concerns and sustainability will continue full throttle in 2023. I think this whole march of us thinking a bit more about how what we use and how we use it and recycling and being less hard on our planet is going to really carry on in 2023. Well, you know, we've been saying it for years, haven't we? And, you know, the organic movement is right front and centre in the middle of all this you know it's the fastest way to turn around a, a piece of land um, is by adopting organic methods organic principles it makes such a difference you can restore soil health you can see animals and, and insect life come back you can turn something around in just one season um, just by adopting organic practice so I, I'm excited about 2023 I, I think now's our time I really do I think people want to hear about organic it's now unstoppable people understand the importance of protecting nature of doing what they can and if we can all do something in our gardens or in our growing spaces or in our school gardens or in our community gardens if we can all act on behalf of nature and and repay our debt to nature then what an enormous difference we could make in just one year yeah, certainly. I mean, nature's just so good at recovering if we give it its opportunity. And then I think it's really important that don't feel like you're on your own. Don't you feel like you can't make a difference. If we all make a little bit of an effort, that turns into a massive effort and we'll definitely, definitely have a much more happier time gardening into the future. We need to think more about the future, not just this year. You know, what about in 10 years? What we do now is investing in, in, in life in 10 years time, isn't it? It certainly is. I mean, gardeners have always been good at this uh, planting for the future. A man plants a tree, someone else can sit in the shade of it in 100 years' time. That's the way we operate, and uh, and that's what we all encourage people to do. Wise words indeed spoken from you there, Chris, a man with true experience. Thank you. Thank you, Fiona. A couple of months back, I went to visit a very special organic dairy farm, famous for its yoghurt, milk, butter, cheese, and now soups, dips, and ice cream. Yo Valley Organic has grown from selling at the farm gate to an operation that now employs 1,500 people and is a household name. The company is run by the Mead family, who can trace their farming roots back to the 15th century. Owners Tim and Sarah Mead are wholly committed to organic farming. In 2021, the year when the Chelsea Flower Show was in September rather than May, Sarah Mead and designer Tom Massey created an organic show garden, which was certified by the Soil Association and went on to win a Chelsea Gold Medal. That show garden was brought back to the Yo Valley headquarters and sits amongst the other gardens that are open to the public and run by Sarah, who gave me a fascinating tour. We're standing looking across an incredible garden here, an organic garden. First of all, I must ask Sarah Mead, who's here with me, uh, to describe this incredibly colourful vegetable <laughs> garden I'm looking at. Well, that's really kind. Thank you. Because this veggie patch is uh, the main viewpoint from our tea terrace, 
I needed to deliver, but I really needed to look pretty because most most of the people that come to visit the garden, because obviously you wouldn't ever go and visit a garden unless you were going to eat a cake. So <laughs> most people are sitting looking at this whilst they're having their tea and cake. So it was very important that it looked right. The veg that we're majoring on at the moment is chard. I love it for the stems. We also use it extensively in pot decorations for the stems. I love anything with a bright colour on it, though. Lots and lots of tajatees, which is useful as a something to bring in pollinators to help us. Um, when you're gardening organically, there's a certain amount of inevitable pests and diseases that arrive. The challenge is, obviously, we can't go out there and spray things that you can in conventional gardening. So we look at other ways of doing things. Yes, well, this is often the way, isn't it? There's a certain amount of live and let live, I have to say. We decided last year that we were really, really struggling with our brassicas uh, against cabbage whites. Um, so we've actually invested in having a cabbage cage, which has been a great luxury. But we've, we've adopted the kind of barrier method that we use a lot so that they actually can't get there. And it has really worked wonders. So we're pleased we've done that. I mean, uh, what is interesting is um, how many flowers you have got amongst the vegetables. Um, they're not all necessarily edible flowers is that right no they're not um some of them are literally because we know they're really attracted to pollinators a lot of them are edible i mean they're, they're you can just make out the borage is still flowering amazing in november so we do have a mixture we have th- we also have what we call rather mean sacrificial flowers so we plant a lot of things like nasturtiums where we're hoping that then all the pests will go on to those nasturtiums and then we'll dispose of them. So there's a kind of belt and braces thing going here um, in terms of gardening it organically. We do use companion planting. We do do a certain amount of rotation. We try very hard not to dig, partly because it's less work, which I'm really keen on. <laughs> um, we do a lot of mulching. We use nematodes against slugs. I mean, what is your main pest this year? And I don't even like to call them pests. We're, no, you, I know. You know, you, you have put it that everybody deserves a meal. And, yes. and that's absolutely right. Yes, I love that. That's great. <laughs> uh, everybody does deserve a meal, don't they? And so there is there is an element to live and let live. I have to say, you know, when you have a real a really bad infestation of, of aphids or black fly you will you might find me in the vegetable patch just running my finger up a stem but ultimately i'm not trying to wipe out the entire colony because it's critical that you leave things alone enough that you're not breaking the food chain because the moment you break the food chain you've lost the battle absolutely um, right, well, we're walking down through, we've passed a couple of lovely, lovely uh, patches uh, of Yes, of the Arindia, yes. yes. Which is still going know. strong again, and it's isn't November. isn't it a great doer? You know, you'd never be without it, would you? It's just brilliant. Yeah. And you've lined these beds with a, a fabulous hedge of thyme, actually. Yes, which is lovely for the bees, of course, completely buzzing all the way through the summer and obviously useful for a thyme tea, but also just, just in cooking. If I had my thyme again, if I'm honest, I wouldn't put wood on the edges of my ah. veggie beds because I think it doesn't help you with your slugs. It's a good refuge for them. What could one use instead well, of wood? Well, if you speak to Charles Dowding, who is a near neighbour of ours, he doesn't use anything at all. He just makes the mound. and then he, But his paths, he uses things like uh, wood chip for paths and things. So it's a, it's a slightly less formal arrangement than this would be. I mean, I've had success with copper tape, I have to say. Yes, top tip coming. Copper tape does work. We found that it's it can be quite expensive, especially if you've got a lot of things you want to protect. But if you go to a builder's merchant and get it as roofing copper, it's a hell of a lot cheaper. Ah, there you okay. go. And you can buy it on a roll. Okay. So then you can shape it however you want. Brilliant. Beer traps, actually, we found very, very effective against yes. slugs. Yes, we have too. Yeah. Yes, yes, very much so. I say copper and beer. Okay, there we go. That's the combo. 
Yes, and we're just now walking past the rather magnificent <laughs> cabbage cage. We're looking at some really beautiful kind of dark vein kale, kale and, yes, um, and the Brussels and sprouts are yeah, coming sprouts on. for Christmas. Hooray! Yes. Yeah, you cry. Yeah. But yeah, I think we can give it a tick on the successometer. Okay, so we're now walking through um, to uh, the, probably the first area of the garden that visitors would come into. Yeah. I'm, we're looking across at a, a, a really lovely glass house, but actually we've got um, a pair of lawns really on either side of us mm-hmm. and um, a beautiful set of sort of pleached crab apples. So can we talk about them first? Because, yeah, sure. Um, you know, it looks to me like you've you've gone to some professional sort of pleach supplier <laughs> and they've parachuted in these perfect mm. pleaches and um, so it's one two three seven trees that are woven together in in beautiful straight lines so just talk us through the pleaching well do you know what i I'd love to say that we were parachuting in, but actually we've done them ourselves. I, Mr. Google is very useful for things like this, isn't it? They're Malice Red Sentinel, so they've got the wonderful red crabs now, uh, which will hang on until the winter, until some pair of blackbirds finds them, and then we'll literally come down and they'll be stripped. I think it probably took us about five years to get the framework right, but it was the difference between £13.50 and a couple of hundred. Well, quite. So um, then there's a pathway right in front of us, and yes. on either side, of the pathway something quite interesting is happening so do you want yes, to explain gosh, that to okay. me so uh, a few years ago I was sitting with the garden team and we were discussing where in the garden we could uh, replace existing lawn which we were mowing with areas that we didn't have to mow so this area with the two semi-formal lawns slightly raised either side of the glass house so with that in mind a couple of years ago we stripped the turf so now what you see is just a, a single mower's width turf strip to make a frame but the insides of both beds we stripped off, made turf stacks, and then we did a Charles Dowding. So we did cardboard and compost over the top just to kill any residual weeds. And then a couple of years ago, we did our first annual sowing of annual meadow mixes. So not meadow is a slightly misleading word, but that's the, what they, they call them. But it's basically a mix of annuals. And what happens is, that, as you rightly point out, this is where visitors first see the first bit of garden. So when visitors come, I, I, I love it because it looks absolutely full of flower, mm. totally overwhelming. And people literally stop in their tracks and go, wow, look at that. And that's, that's great. This year, normally we would let it stand because it, it was actually still flowering because everything's so late this year. And also there's lots and lots of seed heads. But this year, because we're introducing some bulbs into the mix, we're having to, we're cutting it back now. We'll plant our bulbs and then I will over-sow it just to be certain in about April, May time. So I'm interested that in order to sort of turn what was basically two beautiful pieces of grass into meadows Mm. in one season... Mm. But actually, I'm just thinking how easy that could be in a small piece of my own garden, for example. Yeah, sure, sure. If no you've time. got a little patch you don't know what to do with, uh, it's a really good way of solving that. And there's something about with meadow seeds that yes. they, they can't have it too rich, can they? Yeah, it, it, it does depend what you're trying to do. So annual seeds really don't like too much richness. If you're doing perennial meadow, then that's not such, so important. They're much more forgiving perfect if you're for example if you're starting a new garden on a new patch of land which isn't necessarily very good the soil quality is not very good it's a very good way to deal with that i mean we use a lot of um 
different green manures here to cover to cover the ground and my plant of the year is phacelia because mm. it's just been brilliant for us yeah we talk about it a lot the Do beautiful you? yeah beautiful okay. blue flowers oh, it's a you know, isn't it? and, they, and also just you know very easy and quick to germinate and you know a really encouraging plant if you want to start with something you yes know, yes yes it gives it gives a lot back very it's quickly absolutely banker if people come on one of our gardening days we always give a packet of phacelia to take away because it's full of bees yes technically you shouldn't really let it flower if you want to get the grieve and your goodness out of it but i can't bear not to let it flower yes so but if flowers neon blue yeah amazing and yes. an extraordinary sculptural flower yeah uh, it's just uh yeah it's, it would be on my top 10 plants of all time i think so having um created your lovely sort of meadow-like annual beds yes. here you then decided actually you wanted a little more permanence and yeah. so you've you've decided to go go down the bulb route as well i know yes i know controversial <laughs> no it not at all well it may well prove not to be the best idea i've ever had in my life but that's okay in my head we'll have the crocus for earlier on in the season to give us something to look at early february time and then the Eremurus will pop up through the annual seeds. In my head, that makes a beautiful picture. So let's just hope it works. I mean, that's it with gardening. You've got to experiment a bit and try things. Got to give it a go. It's give it a, a go. Yeah, so so uh, Eremurus being foxtail lilies. Um, it's beginning to tip down. Is that going to be a good idea? Okay. We've had a wonderful walk round the garden this morning and we've just come in to uh, get out of the rain. But I just want to ask you, Sarah, you, you told me that uh, you married a farmer. I did. Um, but then you became a gardener. So yes. tell me how that happened. Well, it wasn't part of my plan, let me tell you that much. I certainly didn't. I wanted to be Liza Minnelli for a long time. But luckily, <laughs> I've spared the world that horror. And uh, I, as I said, hadn't planned to marry a Somerset farmer. That wasn't part of my life plan at all. But, you know, love is love, isn't it? So you end up doing what uh, your heart tells you. So after five years, um, I moved down here to uh, be with Tim in Somerset, and I inherited the basics of a small farm garden that my mother-in-law and my father-in-law had tended uh, for the 30-odd years beforehand. And uh, so that's how I got into gardening, really, out of necessity. I can't tell you that I was passionately in love with the garden at all. It was more a case of, gosh, uh, my mother-in-law's coming for Sunday lunch. I'd better do something. <laughs> so so I'd better, better clear things up a bit. Yes, yes exactly. So it was a traditional garden originally, yes, sort of yes. just round the farm yes. house. Yes. The garden itself was fairly traditional, fairly low maintenance, because Roger and Mary were very, very busy. The farm was very much more diverse than it is now. We had a little bit of everything. We had pick-your-own-strawberries. We used to do cream teas as well. And the donkeys from Western Supermare would come and spend their winters here. So there was a lot going on. There's not a huge amount of time for gardening. So it was shrubs. There was a little rockery. There was a little grove of birch trees at the bottom. Um, and really, that was about it. So what was the light bulb moment in terms of gardening and, and when oh, you suddenly God. sort of switched on to it? Yeah, a lot of people, when you talk to them about this, that have got into gardening later in life. And I think for me, that actually when I was a child... Um, my uncle came to stay with us and he brought with him some runner bean seeds and I just remember very distinctly him putting those seeds in the ground with me and then 10 days later going out and seeing these little green crooks emerging from the earth and the magic then of being able to weeks later eat something I just thought that was amazing but it wasn't until I came down here really got into it and I was lucky that we had then Hatsman House, 
which is a half hour from here drive. It's now the Newt. And Hadspun was a real inspiration for me. I used to go off there and meet up with Norrie and Sandra Pope, who ran it. And they were fabulously knowledgeable and incredibly generous with their knowledge. And they just indulged me. I just used to talk to them for hours. And that was it for me. I thought this is something that's very forgiving. Gardening is very forgiving. If you make a mistake, it's not normally the end of the world. You can try again next time. And of course, I've I've got a huge advantage in that unless Tim and I have a major fallout, I'm intending to be here long term. I've been here 30 years now. And God willing, I'll be here for a few more as well. So the knowledge that I'm always going to be here gives me license to play out there and to try things and change things when they don't work and experiment. That's what does it for me. I love that. Why did you decided it was a good idea to, to have an open garden here? That's a really good question. <laughs> Actually, to be honest, when we very first opened about 30 years ago, it was just for the National Garden Scheme. And I really did it to give myself a deadline of getting things up together. But uh, now we open, if I say in a slightly more professional, more business-like manner. So we're open, depends every year, but this year we're open in February for snowdrops. And uh, then we open properly from mid-April Three days a week, Thursdays, Fridays and Saturdays, right up until the end of October. Um, And why do I do it? Jolly good question. Partly because I'm a terrible show off. Partly because I really like meeting people. Uh, Partly because it gives me and the garden team something to look forward to. We really like having people here. But the main reason is to demonstrate, and as much to ourselves as to the people that come and visit us, to demonstrate that it is possible to have a totally organic garden that still looks all right. You know, that it's not all kind of, you know, a bit of binder twine and tires, no offence, Bob, but you can have an element of design, you can have an element of colour. And if people come here and they take something away from it that makes them think about their own garden, then that's happy days for me. You know, we're doing what we do because we believe in it, obviously you know, the brand, Dio Valley, is a, a big organic brand. We've been farming organically forever. Um, so the organic thing is kind of in our DNA. But for me, you know, if you get chatting to somebody, peering into the veg patch, looking at your black fly on your broad beans, and you can have a discussion with them as a fellow gardener around that, then that's really rewarding. And kind of that's why we do it. You, you talk about Yo Valley, of course, we all see it in the supermarkets. Yeah. We know it's an organic brand, the, the yogurts, the cheeses. But that's the product end. And, of course, what we tend to be talking about in terms of gardening is the practice end, the organic practice. Yeah. And for ordinary folk and for ordinary gardeners, the opportunity to be able to see how organic gardening sits so perfectly alongside organic farming means that we're part of something even as ordinary gardeners hit the nail on the head absolutely the great news about the whole organic gardening thing actually is that in a lot of instances it's hands-off approach less work less work amazing who doesn't love that so not spraying things not killing things not overfeeding things or over cosseting things hands off the mower a bit you know, I know it's a slightly hackneyed thing to say but it really really doesn't have to be an all or nothing club it's one of the things I find really difficult just choose one thing that suits you and your family and the 
and the land or the garden or the flower pot you have available to you and apply one principle to start off with. And I guarantee that you'll feel better for it and that your results will show. It's not perfect. You know, we are certainly not perfect here. I can't think of a year when we haven't had some sort of challenge to deal with but that's kind of part of the fun and you'd still have that if you weren't gardening organically anyway but the beauty is because we're not interrupting the food chain we have fantastic hundreds and hundreds of natural gardeners here that are helping us on a daily basis that just arrived because we've not killed them it's brilliant um and the garden benefits i i i mean i am obviously biased But I would not go back for all the tea in China because the garden feels better for it. That's not to say it's perfect, but it feels better. And I think visitors get that. I think they sense it too. So we're going to walk outside again now because it has actually stopped raining, I'm glad to report. And an awful lot of industry going on outside the glass house. It's it's that sort of autumn time. And you have here um, a number of perennials that you've divided, but also some things that, that obviously you've grown on from seed. You don't believe in cosseting, is that right? No. Treat them mean, keep them keen. Isn't that the saying? Something like that. Yeah, as you well know and probably a lot of the listeners know, that the the whole thing about organic gardening is the soil. The soil is the nucleus and basis of what we're working with. If you get your soil right, life is much easier. You know, we're having unprecedented droughts in this country now, but we didn't water at all this year. Ah, not quite true. We watered things in pots, but the main garden, we didn't have any water. Now, some things did look a bit the worse for the wear and had a bit of a droop, things like Veronicastrum that are very early to show that. But we cut them back and they came back with gusto. So it's like anything. If you over mollycoddle things, if you wrap them up in cotton wool, if they're always looking to you for their food or for their problem solving, then they don't get independent. They don't do their own thing. It's just like kids, actually. Um, I, I do have a very expert gardening friend who tells me that the secret to gardening through drought is cutting back, cutting back, cutting back, giving the plant a chance to to, to regroup, I guess. Yes, absolutely right. I I totally agree with that. If you imagine that, uh, you know, if you're trying to support a huge amount of top weight, if you can reduce that so that the plant is literally concentrating on its root system, bringing moisture up, just on regrowing from the base it's always going to be a lot easier we're going to walk on round to the brilliant compost area um given that we're on a farm i just want to explain that the compost area is on you know quite a grand scale but uh that said it's still the kind you could almost replicate in your own garden now i know you're totally passionate about composting sarah so (laughs) So we have big compost bays that we designed to be, we have a little ride-on digger bucket thing where we, which we use to turn it. And so we, we built the compost bays to be exactly two widths of the bucket. But compost-wise, we, tr- we aim to go from start to finish six to nine months. It does depend. We used to actually, we used to be very proud and sort of say, oh yes, within 12 weeks. We were turning then every week. But actually, I then got into a conversation with Claire Hattersley, who's the head gardener, or was the head gardener, she's just retired, of Willida, who are biodynamic as well as organic. And she was saying, it's like a Christmas cake. You wouldn't hurry that Christmas cake because you want that lovely fruit and all the goodness and you're feeding it with the alcohol and making it delicious. So think of compost like that. So ever since I had that conversation, we've been less about speed and more about quality. 
That is fascinating because actually there's this movement now that's around on the internet and, and people have come up and talked to me about it actually at, at various public events we've been at about really ultra-fast composting, yeah. you know, sort of almost overnight composting and yeah. and um, and chopping things up, you know, incredibly small to get things yeah, much more too. speedily breaking down. Well, you know what they say good things come to those who wait i mean we do we do chop up stuff we do but we're not looking for speed we're looking for goodness so we're in this you know really beautiful valley so all the hills are sort of towering over us but what i'm looking at now is is a, is almost a sort of prairie like scene of grasses that are you know almost six foot tall uh, just one bed of them explain this for us yes well i yeah i really like this bit um originally the plan was to try and reflect the crops so i wanted to have that straw color at this time of year so there's two grasses calamagrostis colfoster and stiper gigantea just the two that's it and there's a path that weaves you can't see it from here but there's a a small path that weaves its way through. I love that when we have visitors here, they disappear completely. You can hear the voices and small children as well running through it. But it's a really, really simple thing. But I mean, even now, we've just had a wonderful shower of rain and the dew drops, the little raindrops are still standing on the grass. And when it's frosted, it's extraordinary. So these will all be cut back hard, probably in March. And then the first thing that happens is alliums, alliums in quantity and nectoscordium as well, and then Iris Siberica. So those three together open the season for this grass area. Then they fade, and we then try Eremurus, which I am determined to get going in here. But that's it, that's all, and Eremurus with the grasses. Then Nifophia, Nifophia, no rhyme or reason, which is a wonderful kind of bronzy coloured nephophia but again works really well with the grass colours and then to finish the season Rudbeckia demii just sitting all the way through it. And you've just given a masterclass there Sarah in in that whole you know year-round interest thing that so many of us try to achieve and and you know I'm always sort of looking at the books and and thinking this year will be the year but now I think I've I've got an absolute blueprint I can just follow this this is brilliant. But do you know what I do exactly the same thing I think we all do we all look at the pictures we all look at the magazines or look at Monty on the telly and go oh I'll do a bit of that and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't but gardening is super forgiving luckily and you know I've been at it for 30 years good grief I've made some absolute corkers howlers of mistakes but when it goes right that and the birch grove are the two areas that I would say visitors really relate to we're going to come to the birch grove in just a moment but just before we do I did quickly want to um, draw attention to this extraordinary pair of apple trees the apples they are absolutely tiny 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 it's ballas transitoria and i have two either side of the path and i as i just said i'm always nicking everybody else's ideas i saw this tree in full flower on a garden and if you stand underneath it when it's in flower it is as though you have a helmet of bees on your head it is smothered with flower and the whole thing buzzes i mean we're lucky it's a big garden six and a half acres and As a result of that, I can have what I call my diva plants. And they are the plants that give you a moment of utter joy. I mean, they are diva plants, but I suspect also the birds absolutely love those little tiny apples. Absolutely, yes. There's clearly a bit of a crabapple thing going on because we're walking uh, towards now what I'm going to grandly call an avenue of extraordinary uh, tiny, tiny red crabapples again. So now which is this crabapple? This is the tea crab. So it's 
Malus hypohensis. It's brilliant, absolutely, absolutely glorious, bright red avenue. And we're on a grass path between two really beautiful herbaceous beds. Not terribly big. Tell us what you've got here. Ah, well, now here's a good example of how obsessive I can get about colour. So here we've got the red, what we call the red and lime borders. I'm obsessed enough that nothing makes it into either of these beds unless it's been quarantined first. Because quite often, I don't know about you, but quite often when you look in, a, say, a, a catalogue to order a bulb or a dahlia tuber, the printing is a bit misgiving. And I need my red to be proper red, not blue or not purple or pink. In fact, I'm looking at this now, seeing that actually that Achillea too <laughs> pink. So a red and lime isn't necessarily a conventional colour combination but um, I quite like it here. There's not a lot that's terribly conventional here I think it's fair to say (laughs) and then we're coming into something that's almost completely the opposite of that which is a grove of silver birch trees so just to you know bring that to life these mature trees are planted you know around about 75 centimeters apart you know they are really crammed in here and they've they've put a sort of canopy really on the top right at the top but they haven't really put branches out sort of further down and so you feel like you're kind of walking through this very magical forest because all the trunks are white and then underplanted with lovely deep green ferns and then there's some some small woodland plants wood anemone and um, I can see white cyclamen I mean it's it's like fairyland I'm chuffed to bits with it because it's a moment of pause for the rest of the garden's quite busy this is actually a moment of stillness here so yes, they're, they're all tall and straight and no, I don't wash the trunks. Life's too short to wash a birch trunk. And they're just growing into these columns of fresh green foliage, which just seems to be working really well. So I, I mean, I, I do love this area, but like a lot of things, it's kind of happened despite me rather than because of me. But again, very, very simple planting. So let's look now because we've come into what I'm going to term a gravel garden. You've got um, pathways of gravel and then swathes of planting within the pathways. It's very informal. It's lovely. It all sort of spills over itself. It's not um, flower beds with gravel paths, but it feels really modern and and really exciting and and futuristic to me. Well actually I was heavily influenced by a visit to Jardin Plume in northern France which is a contemporary garden that has a lot of grass planting. Everything was above your head. It was a bizarre and wonderful feeling and a bit Alice in Wonderland and I wanted to replicate that here. I don't think I've managed to succeed with that but I think we're getting there. All perennials I'd say. Yes and the reason for that I'm afraid is, is boring old practicality. We have a problem with bindweed here and we also have a problem with equisetum of course you can lift and divide herbaceous annually and unthread your bindweed at the same time it gives you better control Um, but of course like a lot of things in life we started off from practicality and now it's become a bit of a a project to try and get this wonderful kind of flush of tall growth that means that you feel really immersed in it you also talked about equisetum. Yes, we have it in abundance here. So I quite like equisetum. I th- I've made friends with it because it's structurally it's the most amazing looking thing. But we do also harvest it and we, we make a tea from it, which we then use against fungus diseases on things like courgettes, cucumbers, anything from that sort of curcubert family. It works really well, um, basically because equisetum has a lot of silicon in it. And that silica comes out when you make a tea and then it sort of it works almost like a coating on the leaf. 
against. So you do it as a preventative rather than a cure. That is very interesting idea because I know that an awful lot of our members at Garden Organic get you know have real problems with mare's tails so uh, it's nice to to know that there's a there's a real practical use for it I'm interested that you say that you've embraced it and I think that's in many ways that's the key isn't it with organic gardening is that some of it you just have to sort of recategorize things absolutely right and you have to pick your battles it's like anything in life isn't it and also I think I feel like we also need to slightly adjust our perception of what perfection is and I think it's coming I really do I think people are beginning to get it which is great the other thing is I keep stressing is that the more organic you are actually ultimately the less work which is brilliant more time to enjoy the garden better but yes it is i think we just all of us have got to relax a bit that would be good i think we could do that generally actually we've all got to slightly adjust our vision of what perfection looks like um and just enjoy it now time for the post bag and i'm here with chris hi fiona you're right yeah i'm all right and i'm also here with anton hi anton hi fiona we've got some varied questions this time the first one is about keeping the soil covered so let me fire away with the question i've taken your advice to try and keep my soil covered over winter i've covered some with green manure plants that's very good tick um but not all my soil I wondered about covering with fallen leaves. Now, there are plenty of these, but I'm concerned they'll harbour pests, particularly slugs. Do you think the leaves would be a problem? And in the spring, when I'm ready to plant, should I then rake them up again um, as they won't have rotted in time? Anton, let me come to you first. What should we do with our fallen leaves? Okay, so definitely along the right lines of wanting to keep the soil covered over the winter because you want to stop the nutrients being leached out by the rain. And you also want to protect the soil surface. So definitely a tick for that. As to whether you would use fresh fallen leaves, personally, I would put them perhaps under sort of bushes and shrubs and things like that, because you're sort of mimicking a woodland. That's what would happen in nature. So I I think that would work. I wouldn't be so keen on putting them directly on a veg patch um, for a couple of reasons, really. One, if the leaves are sort of still rotting down, then they can take some of the nitrogen out of the soil. So that might sort of starve your veg of nutrients in the next season. It does really does depend on the types of leaves as well. So the ones which are slow to rot down, that might be a problem. And secondly, there is the worry that it might give somewhere for slugs to hide. It's a bit of a tricky one, really. So, yeah, I wouldn't be so keen on putting unrotted leaves onto your veg patch. If we were looking for a bit of a quick fix, though, to cover uh, the soil in the veg patch, what, what would you recommend, Chris? Yeah, well, I certainly probably would avoid the leaves or any new leaves anyway. I think leaves are better off in the leaf mould compound or or, or you sort of if you've got an attachment to your compost area, put a leaf mould bit in there and make sure they rot in there. I would just put down cardboard, simply as that, Fiona. I would get some cardboard, I'd weight it down with some bricks and I'd protect it that way. So cardboard is a really quick fix, really. Um, if you've got a leaf mould that's well rotted down, that's great. Use that, but don't put them on fresh, basically. Leaf mould's quite valuable stuff. It's great for soil structure. So if it's nice and rotten, you can put that down 
and it will benefit. Um, as for the, if you want to get rid of raw leaves, if you've got too many of them, maybe use them in a shrubbery. If you've got a shrubbery or an area with trees, you can put them in there. I went to Dundee Botanic Gardens or a good three decades ago, and they were practicing no dig in their borders. And they used to put all the fresh leaves onto the borders with the shrubs and the trees. And they took out a sort of sod. They dug up a sod of a of soil with a spade. And I've never, ever seen so many earthworms. So there is always a place for fresh leaves in the garden either. Now that's that's good advice for me, actually, because I've got um, an awful lot of leaves that flutter into my garden and I tend to just leave them on the flower beds and, and just not worry about them. But in terms of the veg beds, yeah, clearly not a good idea to put unrotted leaves. OK, uh, really helpful. Thank you very much. Right. Well, moving on now. This question is from Philippa. We have horses and donkeys and have been selling well-rotted horse manure to many local gardeners over the years. The problem now is that the best is at the bottom of the heap. Is there a way people can still use the newer, fresh muck in their composting process? The horses are bedded on fine shavings and there's very little hay in the bedding. Okay, so lots in there. Let's start by understanding what we mean by well-rotted manure. Anton? Well, I think the clearest indication is the heat in it, really. If it's still steaming, then it's definitely still breaking down. It hasn't rotted down. So well rotted, it should have cooled down. You probably won't see so much of the original matter in there as well, because that will have broken down. And also because it's cooled down, you'll also more likely to find more biological activity in there. You'll see more sort of worms that have got gone back in there from the, from the soil because when it's really, really hot, they tend to sort of migrate elsewhere. So th those three things really. Okay, I'm loving the sound of, of, of what a good, well-rotted manure looks like. Chris, I know you're a fan. Tell us about times you've used it. Well, I'll tell you what, if for a gardener, you can't beat well-rotted horse poop. It really is brilliant stuff. I've been involved with it ever since I've been a gardener. In fact, my first ever job on the parks was flicking the horse poop back onto the rose beds. And they were the best looking roses <laughs> I've ever worked with, to be honest with you. So you're an apprentice's job and the bird life was all around me. It really is amazing stuff. And I think to follow up what Anton says, as it rots, you find that it's not as smelly. You know, there's no steam coming off it. It breaks down. It becomes more friable. In fact, we used to use big tractors and trailers to uh, to cover um, lays in horse poo. So they'd come up and they'd tilt the trailer and we'd sort of get, get climb up into it with pitchforks and slide down on it. And I know that sounds totally disgusting because obviously it's poo but because it was well rotted you just didn't it just came off you it didn't smell did no problem with it at all it really is amazing stuff when it's well rotted my advice to philippa would be if she's got fresher stuff was to tell her customers to let it rot down it, it's really valuable stuff horse poo it's like it's gold really to a gardener so i wouldn't maybe mess around trying to mix it in with uh, compost or anything like that although that's doable i think i would uh, say to philippa to advise her customers just to get somewhere hard standing get somewhere where they can put it in a pile maybe cover it a bit of tarp let it rot down for three four months over the summer and wait till it's nice and rotten and ready to use i think mate i'd probably turn it as well to help it rot down i think it's too valuable really to mess about with let it rot and use it wisely would be my advice okay great advice i i'm interested in um philippa making the point that her horse muck doesn't have much hay in it um anton it can be quite variable can it yes horse muck really is a variable feast um you can get all sorts of different types of it really let's say if you went to racehorse stables you'd get um, horses which have been fed a very sort of concentrated diet and that can be incredibly concentrated and, and rich in nutrients 
Whereas if you've got something that's perhaps just been grazing out in the field, got lots of the wood shavings and straw and things mixed in, then it will have a much lower nutrient content. And it's, it's still going to be very useful for the soil because it's going to be adding lots of organic matter and improving the soil structure. Okay, brilliant. Well, uh, hopefully that is some good advice for Philippa to be able to pass on to her customers. So moving on, we've got a question here from a listener in Scotland. I'm looking for advice on choosing eating apple varieties. I wish to plant two trees which should grow no taller than about three metres. I live in Aberdeenshire where the garden often gets late spring frosts. So I imagine late flowering is the way to go. Also, it would be good to produce apples that keep well. I'm going to come to you again first, Anton, on this. So, yeah, she's totally right that you want to be going for something that's late flowering. There's nothing more disappointing than seeing your apple tree with lots of nice blooms on it and then it all gets caught by a late frost. It, you, you know, that's that's your season scuppered, really. There's lots of um, varieties which are suitable for that. We actually grow red full stuff in our garden. It flowers late. It's also self-fertile, which is really handy. And we find that the apples keep really well. They're nice flavour. Certainly, we've been eating them still at Christmas time. I've also looked up this catalogue called Scottish Heritage Trees, and they've got a variety that's called Ribston Pippin, which apparently it's grown quite widely across Scotland and has been around since the 1700s. And again, that keeps very well. It's got a good flavour to it and it also flowers late, which is really important if you're growing up towards Aberdeen. We've got something very specific to answer, which is that these are two trees that should grow no taller than about three metres. I'm imagining, Chris, that that means we need to think a little bit about the rootstock. Yes, certainly the rootstocks are important. They tend to be sort of two main types, really, semi-vigorous and vigorous. So the semi-vigorous will contain the size of your tree. So I only really grow apples in containers or small spaces. So I always look for semi-vigorous varieties uh, with a semi-vigorous rootstock. So that will keep them nice and small. If you go to an apple seller, a producer, an organic one, he will advise you on what sort of rootstock you'll need and what sort of size the varieties will get as a result of it. I think as, as a, just addressing the matter of what how we get apples to last, I think a really good method is to put them in a wooden tray, mix them in with a bit of sand and keep them in a nice cool area like the garage and a lot of apples Apples will last a long time like that, no matter the variety. Okay, and any top tips on pruning, just while we're talking about apple trees? Anton? Well, it's a bit like making a fruitcake pruning. Everyone's got their different opinions on it, and you can watch 20 different videos on YouTube on how to do it. I personally, after you've sort of built up your framework, I like going for something that's called the renewal method. So with that, you end up pruning off the older side shoots so that they never end up getting too big. That way you sort of end up keeping control of your tree and making sure that it's putting most of its growth into burrs which are going to be fruiting. Gosh, so three really diverse questions there. Lots of different things to think about. Thank you so much for your expertise, both of you. Thank you, Fiona. All right. Bye-bye. Thank you, Fiona. Well, that's it for this first podcast of 2023. I do want to encourage you to visit the Yo Valley Garden if you're in their neck of the woods between April and October. They're in Somerset, not too far from Bristol, but you do need to book ahead on the Yo Valley website. It's a fantastic garden, showcasing the very highest standards of organic practice. We'll be back next month, and after that, it'll soon be seed sowing time. Perhaps take some time this month to plan ahead. And if you want to learn more, then check out our organic gardening and composting courses on our website at gardenorganic.org.uk. 
And do check us out on social media if you're looking for a little bit of inspiration or want to find out about all the other stuff that we get up to at Garden Organic. That's it. Until next time. Our thanks to Kevin McLeod for the music. 